I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch Full Frontal Tim Curry. A Mongol and mythical team, feeling this treacherous thing. Legend says L is a spun out of hell. The myth is my mama's a murderous queen. Yo, I can eat like in Godfather 1. You get the gun as I christen my son. If I die today in this hell, I should pay. Tell the Lord Mikey said, fuck it was fun. Every new rack is my dick in a box. We get a doozy, the rollers a lot. You're getting used to me doing no wrong. I don't play chicken, you prick, I'm a fox. You wanna kick it, I'll give you the rods. You kiss the wood chipper blade if you bark. I'm fucking magic, in fact, I'm a war like a talk. I got a Stop. Step into the spotlight. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I am. You know what? I'm a little sad. I'm a little sad too. I don't know. That that voice sounded very mocking. Yeah. I didn't mean it that way. You're, you're um, mocking the idea of sadness. Oh, yeah. No, I only like darkness. Uh, <laughs> no character in this movie named Sadness. So, yeah. you know you know how I feel about only using words that were in the movie we watch it every week. Mm-hmm. That's I have to edit around it every week. Yeah, I know. It's a nightmare. Uh, and it's especially bad. We've only been able to watch movies in the last year and a half that uh, feature the word Trump because he, he sneaks his way into a lot of our episodes. <laughs> so, Aaron, uh, this is a, this is the last month. This is the last of the, the last, the last month. Of the dark eighties dark fantasy month. <laughs> yeah, we never the last month. That's what you said. So I was just repeating it. It's I called. This? It's called. It's called. Yes, ending, Peter. And it's really the the wobbly bridge that holds up our podcast. Um, so yeah, no, it is. It is the last. I'm kind of bummed. It's our last month. We never settled. If I listen to these episodes, we say dark fantasy. We say eighties fantasy. We didn't settle, and that's fine because you don't need to make every decision. All the time. <laughs> like, let yourself think things through sometimes. And and that's what we've done to the point of uh, inaction and freezing. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yes, Dark Age Fantasy uh, is almost over um, on We Love to Watch. And if you've never listened to our podcast before, we are a, a movie podcast. Um, I think I've made all the jokes that were either the first or the last one before being super real. It's somewhere in the middle. There's going to be movie podcasts after us. There's going to be movie podcasts that existed before us. You know, movies, man. They're like this Around. generation's paintings. And, <laughs> and we've, we've hung up every month. We hang up four paintings in our gallery mm-hmm. and based on a theme. And this theme, like I said... We didn't really settle on. Uh, if people if people had walked into an actual gallery, they'd see us changing the titles every week. Be very confused. We'd get no visitors. But it was 80s fantasy movies. And it's I thought the theme one. was fuckable villains. Yeah. Uh, I'm going back through. Who was the fuckable villain in The NeverEnding Story? The Nothing? I think The NeverEnding Story is nothing is very appropriate because I've spent a lot of my lo- life uh, fucking nothing. The <laughs> ultimate... <laughs> villain so um, kids these days are so nihilist know, they, they would love to fuck nothing yeah oh you're fucking something oh, i'm fucking nothing <laughs> well no i'm fucking a hole well a hole something uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh anyway um, so so it is our last it is our last week we're doing ridley scott's uh legend 
uh, to wrap up the month. I actually, Peter, I don't know if you saw, but I already have another 80s fantasy month um, proposed in our shared document because I really love this genre and I just wish there was better better examples of good films in it. Uh, but the ones that are good are, are usually pretty great. And uh, I were watching one of those today. We'll talk about that more later. Peter's never seen it. I, I didn't see it till I was in college, and I completely fell in love with the movie. And that is Ridley Scott's 1985 movie, uh, right off of Blade Runner and Alien, uh, Legend, with Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah and Tim, I was going to say Carrie, <laughs> but not Tim Carey, Smokin'. Yeah. <laughs> the world of darkness and fire, and it's smoking. <laughs> uh, um, Tim Curry. But we're going to talk about that in just a second. Peter, before we do, heard heard on the old grapevine, uh, as the California honey, raisins honey. used to say, you got a game you've you've cooked up in your lab. Quick question, keep... were the California raisins uh, racist? Uh I feel like it's safe to lean on the yes. I think you always, I mean, what's, you know, the, the great podcast, Is It Racist? The answer is almost always yes. Yeah. It's always safe to do that. Oh, and one more thing for those of you that are like, hey, I listened to these two fucking morons talk for a while. I don't understand. I thought there was supposed to be someone else to stop this, to stop what they do when they're by themselves. And unfortunately, uh, Beth Powder could not join us. We were all super bummed. I know this is a very special movie to her. Uh, Peter's probably extra happy because I don't think he has the same affection for it as myself and Beth did. So he's not going to be – it's going to be even playing field. But uh, we've already rescheduled Beth. And even though it's not for an episode that comes out till March, we're going to be recording it here in the next week and a half. So we're I very excited. Computer. You did <laughs> just so that you – yeah, she's having some computer issues. Yeah. So I do have a game. Um, it is a little game. It is some questions, and they're just for you, Aaron. Interesting. So Because we're very sad that Beth couldn't be here, but I think this will work just fine. Um, I kind of wish this had been designed for two people, and we just, like a lot of our games, winged it anyways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, uh, look, I don't have much of a concept. It's 15 minutes before we record. Let's, uh, let's see what happens. <laughs> just hope it all comes out in editing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what we've done for every episode, and it has sometimes worked. So here's the here's the deal that I'll make with you, uh, you know, an unholy pact. If it's a limiting voice deal, no, just right <laughs> out the bat, gonna put my cards on the table. Absolutely not. So you have the opportunity for one, two, three, four, five, six. So uh, hold seven. on, is this hold on? Is this what you were counting during the break that you need a few seconds for and are now recounting on live air? <laughs> no. Uh, this is a different for dramatic effect. It's a different uh, thing you're counting this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just counting <laughs> Before you were balancing testicles. your checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> hold, hold on quick. I'm going to do what I normally do this is podcast, which is all of my bill pay. <laughs> tax season um, is coming up, folks. Uh, so there are seven. your taxes. There's seven points. That you can get in this quiz. Each question is worth one point. All right. Here's the deal. So eight questions. If you <laughs> if you get above a four, you get to have your own opinion for this movie. If you get below or a four or below, you have to always agree with me for the rest of the show. How does that sound? I mean, I don't know what the quiz is about. Based on the stakes that you're raising, I have to assume it is weighted against 
me heavily. But of course, let's do it. Aaron, what if I uh, gave you this pretty necklace? Uh-uh. It almost sounds like something that someone says before they hit you in, like, <laughs> elementary school. Like, I don't know how this is a trick, but it sure sounds like a trick. <laughs> uh, so Ridley Scott is one of the most famous directors to push the director's cut. In some ways, he's kind of – he didn't create the concept, but he's kind of uh, marketed it in a way that no director has before, and he's pushed it in a way no director has before. I almost uh, feel like his narrative is that – he was so tired from making his movies that he didn't have the energy to fight the studios at a certain point and just kept releasing stuff like, whatever, I'm moving on. And then a year later, he's like, wait a second, I really should have said something to them about it because I was not happy. Hey, wait a second. So, like, with Blade Runner, it kind of really fucked it during the era of – uh, you know, VHS releases being uh, rare and slow, and particularly laser discs even being even rarer and slower. The idea of somebody being able to get their own alternative cut on the yeah. media was unheard of, and so he like wasn't able to screen his copy of Blade Runner until ninety two. Uh, 2007 was the last oh, final cut. 92 yeah. was, was, was director's like his cut. first director's cut. And then 2007 was his final cut because he had already um, market fucked the term director's, director's cut. cut. He'd already used it. There's really, though, the director's cut really is the drastic change. The difference between the director's cut and the final cut is like, I think there's a couple unicorn scenes that are extended to make it extra clear that he's supposed to be a replicant, and that's literally it. Yes, and even yeah. Harrison Ford doesn't think that's true. So, uh, that being said, uh, Ridley Scott is famous for doing these these director's cuts. He has done and released director's cuts or extended cuts of most of his movies, pretty much, yep. at this point. Even movies you wouldn't think of, like Robin Hood and Gladiator and stuff, got their own extended director's cut. American Gangster got its own extended director's cut, which is also weird. So, the game is about specific director's cuts that he has made for a few of his movies. Um, let's start, let's start, not easy, but let's start uh, at the one that is most famous, Blade Runner. Okay. Um, so, how many, ultimately, how many versions of Blade Runner were released? Five, seven... Nine, ten. So I feel like this is going to get into shitty work print stuff, which I mean, this is the this is like theatrical release of some kind. Theatrical release. Does or, that include? Hold on. Does that include like screenings before they went and took some more cuts to it, or like release to the public? This was. Uh, it's got to be five. This was different cuts that he made that he announced and screened for people. Okay, so five. Uh, five is the number that's on the uh, Blade Runner yeah. DVD, uh, which is a very good answer, but it's actually seven. There were two intermittent cuts that he did in between and pimped God that are just so close to the other versions that he, like, just combined them and only released five cuts. And of those five cuts, like, two are pretty two are pretty close. Like, it, it, there's, a, there's a whole saga of going into the deep. Like, when we actually do Blade Runner on the show, maybe we'll, we'll take a little corner and go through all the... The actual edits, I won't do that right now, but yeah, it's it's seven oh. it's seven different edits from theatrical to this final one, cut. This one, I put a little Eiffel Tower in for you. <laughs> but yeah, do you have that big, thick-ass Blu-ray? Yeah, I do. Yeah, the one with the unicorn on it. Yeah, and like five fucking he, cuts on it. I gotta say, 
Ridley Scott, a man who loves his unicorns. Yeah. He loves his unicorn. Well, or hates. <laughs> he has mixed opinions of unicorns. As do he, I, actually. He's aware of unicorns. He's, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm going to stand by it. Ridley Scott knows what a unicorn is. <laughs> he's aware of their presence. He's he just doesn't aware. know if they are as good as they could be. You Force know? of good. Mm-hmm. Force of evil. The other thing about unicorns, they're all white. If you ever had a white car, they get dirty easier. <laughs> I would love to see Ridley Scott coked out in the 80s, just going like, yeah, but like, unicorns are like really good. They're like sacred animals. Uh, unicorns are really good. They're like sacred animals. But like, oh, but you, like, call them, you call them sacred. I thought you said secret, which the, was adorable. The picture of Ridley Scott going, these are like, these are like secret animals. They're like secret animals, mate. And they, they, they. Oh. But like, you take the horn off, they're evil. Because technically, the horn is being used for evil. It's like, you what do you use? <laughs> There's there's literally cocaine raining down from the rafters in this movie, I think. So I, I'd buy it. Anyways, what, uh, what is yeah, the so, next so, so second part of that question, did he blame the studio? Yeah. Yep. Uh, he blamed the studio as is rightful. So, uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, yeah. Big uh, Crusades era fantasy epic. It's like a siege movie. All three I, versions of it. Never seen it. <laughs> I watched the theatrical cut on HBO and I thought it was so terrible that like the idea I like could not fathom the idea that a director's cuts could save it. That so everyone says. People say. Yeah. Some people will say. Have you, uh, so you haven't seen the director's cut? I've not seen the director's cut. Some because you say. are calling all those people that say that liars. I <laughs> I'm saying that their facts have not been verified by mine own eyes. Okay. How many minutes were added to the film? Well, that are you going to give me options? I don't know, like 15, 30, 45, 100. I mean, it's either 45 or 100. I feel like 45. It was 45. Ding, ding, ding. You're up to two points. Uh, Did he blame the studio on that? Yeah. He did not, actually. Um, he said that, uh, I mean, he did, he did to me. I don't know if it's in public. (laughs) Oh, okay. You get the point. Yeah. Um, no, he, he said in an interview, he was like, uh, that was my fault. I made the script too sweeping. And then when we got in the cut, I was like, no one's going to want to watch a three hour movie, even though it started Orlando Bloom. That was just in Lord of the Rings. Like I thought at that point he would have taken the lesson. Lord of the Rings is a tight 80. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, it's like, that's what people love about Lord of the Rings. It's how it's just a real lean meet the Lord, movie. Meet the Rings. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> One movie, eighty yeah. minutes. You only have ten fingers. What are you going to spend like top ten minutes a finger? Hundred minute movie. <laughs> so next one, uh, The Counselor, a movie that I, I think you don't like. No, I like it. Yeah, I, I didn't know that that was a movie we agreed on. The Counselor is a movie I'm very fond of. It's an insane crime epic yeah. with Cormac McCarthy's sort of like morality painted all over it. But it's also like um, a movie with a lot of fucked up crazy shit in it. Uh, yeah. And some of it uh, raised the ire of the producers who cut it. Mm-hmm. True. So, so does the director's cut, theatrical cut, or both cuts include the car fucking scene. Well, I think I've only seen the theatrical, and I definitely saw a car fucking scene. So I'm going to go with both. Did you watch it at home? Uh, I think on like HBO. <laughs> uh, they have in 
cut it from the theatrical cut, the actual scene where you could see that her fucking the car. I didn't look at uh, moviesensorship.com to see how close the cutting is, but yeah, they cut a lot of that scene and they also cut a lot of the opening scene where um, Penelope Cruz and uh, uh, the counselor are in bed having sex. Uh, they cut a lot of the sex stuff out of the counselor, but left like well, their let me tell you, I'm pretty sure I saw the theatrical and there's car fucking they may have trimmed the car fucking but there's 100% car fucking in that movie you know what, I'm going to give you a point that I'm going to rescind if you get over four points how's that sound? um <laughs> uh, it sounds bad Peter, if I'm being honest did he blame the honest. studio? well yeah yeah, he blamed the studio. Uh, he uh, hated the fact that the, they were so... At four prudish. points now. He called out Fox for specifically being prudish. Yeah. Um, at this Fox? Point, yeah. Motion pictures? Yeah. Yeah. Did he say, hey, you guys are like living in the 20th century? <laughs> it is please, a weird thing. Please move like, on as fast as possible. Um, so, final question. Which of these director's cuts is actually shorter the Duelist, Alien, Gladiator. I think Alien shorter. Alien is famously a few seconds shorter. Do you know how he did that? Yeah, uh, he took out some scenes and adds in some others. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I, I'll give you. I'll give you a bonus point if you can. If you can come up with it. How he made it shorter? Yeah, it's so, kind of interesting. Okay. I mean, I'll give you a point if it's kind of interesting. <laughs> you're already over. You're already over four points. You already. You, uh, but you. you uh, he cut. Wait, hold on. I'm trying to get. Shh, oh yeah, go do shh, it. Um, I'm assuming he cut – he probably didn't remove a scene from a movie that he thinks is perfect. So, my guess is he's either cut something down in the credits or the opening title scene he made it go quicker. It's very interesting. He didn't cut any scenes. He used alternate takes that ended up running a little shorter. Oh, which is a uh, he he cut some he cut like a few seconds here and there but like really what cut what gave it the the slight edge is that he used a lot of alternate takes. It's a it's an interesting director's cut. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, so it, it doesn't feel like when you're in theaters you you might notice like you're in theaters watching it you might notice like subtle differences between the scenes and how they play out. You want to talk about Legion Legend? <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about Legion. Yeah, I want to talk about the name of the Antichrist. Oh, you got five um, points, by the way. So you get to have your own opinion for the show. Yes, I hate it. Wait, no, I screwed up. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's talk about the movie that I definitely don't hate. Uh, a little movie called Legend, director's cut. <laughs> the show should we start welcoming no, Aaron, each other welcome back? You back? Yeah, Aaron, I'm. Just, I'd like to welcome you back. I'm really glad that we made it. Looks like we made. It. Uh, it's not even a parody. It's just bad singing. It's <laughs> just, just, just you ruining music. It's just you ruining music. 
Oh, how dare you? I, you can't ruin Barry Manilow. I like Barry Manilow. Uh, I, I heard, a, I I heard a single Barry Manilow song in the Hellboy 2 soundtrack, and it turned me around on Barry Manilow for about three weeks. And then I heard more Barry Manilow. Here's the best like, part about songs used ironically. It kind of works. Yeah. I mean, it kind of has to work, right? It do- Yeah, because you hear them ironically, and it's supposed to be a goofy song in, like, a serious scene or something like that. And you're like, oh, that stupid song. Oh, I kind of like it now that no one, it's everyone knows it's dumb. So now, yeah. I, now I can I can embrace it because it doesn't have all that coolness around it like all Barry Manilow songs <laughs> normally do. Uh, all right. Yeah, I've got a couple alternate taglines for you. Great. Um, for, for our audience, really. I get no enjoyment. <laughs> I like to think they don't either. Um, one is, you think unicorn poaching is is cool? Try again, fucker. I thought I thought you were going for a social network riff at the beginning, and instead it turned into nothing. Really, <laughs> stopped. You think killing one unicorn is cool? That's not cool. How about killing two unicorns? How about killing two to bring about <laughs> ultimate darkness? That's yeah. cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. There we go. We workshopped it. <laughs> yeah. We shopped it. We shopped um, it. And then another one I had was, uh, you want to see Tim Curry's dick? <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people disappointed by that tagline. <laughs> <laughs> We're not saying it's in here, but you want to see it. <laughs> Do you want to see it? <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah, this was, I mean, between this and Rocky Horror Picture Show, you kind of had a few movies there for a while that's like, threatened to throw you, show you Tim Burton's dick and then just didn't. And then as he transitioned his career into uh, such films as uh, Home Alone 2, it was more Congo. That he would, yeah, it was more that he would walk in on you and see your dick. Yeah, that that was, yeah, by you, uh, a 10-year-old child, that was a weird movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, he's also in Congo doing the most insane movie accent ever. It was... The Congos of Zaire. It's a serious movie from the writer of Jurassic Park. Big position as a big summer blockbuster. And there's fucking Tim Curry like, I want the diamonds. <laughs> Do you think? Do you Great think he liked to make? Do you think to, uh, Michael Crichton liked to make money? Yeah, is that why he made that movie? <laughs> his primary source. Of, well, he didn't make it. Um, his you primary know why source. He wrote, directed, and starred in that film. Yep, he was Amy the Gorilla, and that's why, if you look closely, there's a lot of clues to that he's playing Amy the Gorilla because the entire movie Amy the Gorilla has that catchphrase we all know, which is "Global warming's a lie." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a piece of shit that guy ended up being. <laughs> Glad he's dead. Um, anyway, liberal, liberal, hoax, hoax, liberal, hoax. There's nothing worse than like. I mean, there's way worse things, but one of the bad things that you can experience in life is like a. There are many bad you, things in life. This is one of them. Yeah, you just don't know that much about personally someone you like, but you know, writers don't have that like that kind of like spotlight. Like actors, like a lot of times you figure them out really quickly. Like. Oh, no, thank you. Um, the writers, it's like, hey, I've just read this person's book for 20 years. Oh, love that Dilbert. What's got, Adam's got to say about the old president? Oh, my God. No. It's totally no. true. And it's yeah. because, it's because uh, paparazzi and reporters are constantly looking at actors. And most people are like, don't look at the writer filth. Yeah. And, we, and we, what we don't think about is that there's a lot of writers who are like crying out and saying, hey, guys, I'm awful 
two, if you just give me a chance, I'm going to really hurt you. Um, for just, glad Stephen, Stephen King ended up being A-OK so far. So that's been good. In just five tweets a day, Scott Adams <laughs> yeah. can, can make you know that he's terrible, too. Yeah. You just go on Scott. Like, can you imagine waking up from a coma and like, oh, the Dilbert guy. Love that guy. Let's see what he thinks about stuff. Oh, women are bad. Oh, that's bizarre. Weird thing uh, for the Dilbert guy to be writing. Moving on. So, Legend is a movie. Bang right off. <laughs> oh, great song. Um, what are we going to do the Muppet movie? I was thinking about that literally we today. Need to do a, yeah, we need to We need to do like four. We should just do four Muppet movies. We, we need to Muppet up. Muppet up. Muppet it up. I think, look. I don't want to just say we struck gold before we made sure it wasn't that fool's cold, but I think we just had a month title name right there. Mop it up. Mop, mop, mop it up. <laughs> okay. Oh, no, it's gold. It's definitely real gold that we can change for currency and possessions. Um, so. You want to uh, tell me about this fucking movie now? Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, so it's really Scott makes a movie. That movie starts with uh, a guy named Darkness, the Prince of Darkness, the Lord of Darkness. The one-hit wonder from the 70s? I believe in a thing called love? It's from 2003. Wow. I'm old. I mean, they were ripping off Queen and stuff like that, but I can't believe that they fooled you. (laughs) That's amazing. Anyways, um, Tim Curry wanted you to just listen to the rhythm of his heart. Uh, (laughs) A lot of singing. That means we got nothing under the curtains here, guys. It's just empty. We're just moving machines around. So the the Lord of Darkness is like, uh, I would like darkness all the time, please. And his goblin buddies are like, all right, well, let's kill these uni- unicorns. He's like, yes, the, the darkness. <laughs> Tim Curry's awesome at this movie. Anyway, he's so good. He really, but he really hits every word with with the most Tim Curry uh, Tim Curry flair. That uh, that he can. We'll get to uh, it, but I'm pretty sure he's also the most natural speaker in the movie. Like, he feels most comfortable with dialogue of anyone in the movie. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I'm, I'm not going to have much of a defense for that. Besides, it doesn't bother me. But, uh... So, anyways, there's unicorns. They gotta take the unicorn's horn. Sun never comes back up again. Great plan. Mark it in the book. Meanwhile, a just literally just a homeless guy. He's just supposed to be a hermit. Played by Tom Cruise, lives in the woods, kind of an impish fellow, is in love with uh, Mia Sarah, who's a princess. Um, and they, they, she goes off into the woods and meets her homeless buddy, um, and they have some adventures. He's like, hey, psst, you want to see a dead body, but not a dead body, a unicorn? And she's like, of course. He's like, just remember, law of the forest, don't touch that fucking unicorn. Shit will happen. So, of course, Mia Sarah's like, mm, I want to I touch it. And then the Buzzcock song, Why Can't I Touch It, plays. and uh, But she touches it. And then the goblins shoot off the horn. Darkness falls. Uh, Mia Sarah and Tom Cruise get separated. And the rest of the movie is them kind of going on their separate journeys. Jack, who's Tom Cruise's character who he plays, you know, the classic grim fairy tale name, Jack. Although I suppose... As I eat, uh, as my am hoisted by my own petard, I forgot about the guy with the beanstalk. So fuck me, I guess. Very common fairy tale name. <laughs> he. It's like up- it's like the most like basic man name. Like it's yeah. like it, it's like if God did punch up on the Bible, uh, Adam would have been replaced with Jack. 
Yeah, but, you know, God and L. Ron Hubbard have the same philosophy. <laughs> First draft, final draft, get it out the door. <laughs> <laughs> Coincidence? Uh, <laughs> um, Jack meets up with woodland creatures, elves, and what's that, what's that little guy? That guy's creepy as shit. I, the, the ten-year-old with the, with the, like, adult voice that comes out of Huck? him. Not Puck. Fawn. It's a yeah. It's a fawn. That's what they're called. What's his What's his What's his name? Puck. Puck. There. So he meets, kind of led by Puck, this creepy fawn, uh, and then other other people in the forest, a fairy, and they are going to go rescue Miasera. And uh, she he gets yelled at for a little bit for letting Miasera take the or touch the unicorn. So they kind of go up to this giant castle. Everyone knows where darkness lives. It's right in the center of town. It's a giant mm-hmm. castle. Goes up to the sky, and uh, they they go on some misadventures. They meet a water witch. They meet uh, one of the guys from the depths and uh, Dark Souls, who's doing some butching. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then meanwhile, Miasera also finds her way there, and she the darkness is kind of tempted, tempting her. Wants her him her to be his queen. She is pretty steadfast. She kind of tricks him a few times. That she might be interested while he pontificates in the best Tim Curry fashion, but ultimately nothing comes of it. Jack gets there with his friends to save the day. They have also brought a unicorn, the other, because they have to kill the other unicorn, two horns, gets the darkness. They're one down, one to go. He has a unicorn, he needs a tunicorn. Yeah, he needs a duocorn. <laughs> Double corn. They formulate a plan to use all these mirrors that they've been seeing around the castle to put the sunlight right before it sets to hit darkness. Um, and they do that through an elaborate series of uh, Rube, Rube Goldberg device. The, the light, the sun setting sun shoots a darkness, shoots him off into space. He gives a little speech about how darkness will always be with you. What is light without? The dark. That's a little taste what Tim Curry is bringing to the table in this baby. And he gets shot out of space. And then uh, one thing I really like about the director's cut version, uh, Jack goes back off into living in the dirt uh, by himself. And Mia Sarah goes back off to the castle. Uh, this theatrical cut, they walk away to the unicorn together. We're going to talk about some of the differences. We're going to talk about the circumstances behind the making of this movie. Let's rip the Band-Aid off. I so I saw this movie in college, loved it. Um, it was just a visual treat. I saw the director's cut first. Eventually, went back and watched the theatrical, and was like, "Uh, uh-uh, director's cut all the way on this one, Mister Scott. You were right." Uh, we're gonna talk about some of the differences, but I I just fell in love. I thought it was uh, so visually arresting. Every scene, every production design. Um, I would I would easily put this as like. Maybe the top five makeup achievements of all time with Tim Curry's Devil, and and so it was just this very classic Grimm's fairy tale type world with that just looked stunning the entire time, and I fell in love with it, and I've loved it ever since. I've watched it a few times. Was happy to pick up the Blu-ray for this for this watch, and yeah, it, it has some corny dialogue, which I think is actually kind of fitting with what Ridley Scott is trying to do with the movie. Talk about that in a little bit, but Peter, this was your first time seeing it. Let's get some general thoughts, and then we'll go into a little bit uh, behind the scenes, the theatrical director's cut, and then we can start drilling down. 
I'm of two minds in the movie because I really do find the visuals in it very stunning in the sense that it, it, it's a aesthetic piece for me. I think it's like the kind of thing that a lot of people see uh, Blade Runner as. The, yeah. the, new, the new critical consensus that I'm getting on Blade Runner is that it's like all visuals but no drama, which is not what I agree on. I, I kind of feel I, like that's the thing that Ridley Scott is – if you don't like a Ridley Scott movie, whether you're a critic or just an audience member, it feels like the criticism of – it, of it is looks gorgeous nothing on the inside yes uh there's a sort of hollowness and i disagree about that with blade runner but i th- feel like this movie is um can sort of feel like a uh sister movie you know one is sci-fi one is fantasy uh a sister movie on the flip side of it of blade runner for people that don't like blade runner where it's like hey did you not like uh, visually dense films uh, that are sort of playing off uh, genre tropes within a specific mold? And it has a lot of uh, characters sitting around, but like the music kind of imparts wisdom onto them, like that sort of thing. If you don't like Blade Runner, you probably won't like this. But I, I see like a, a wisdom and a, you know, a meaning in Blade Runner that I, I'm just not seeing in this, uh, which is kind of disappointing because... This is in a genre that I quite like. I really like seeing what fantasy was before Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah, it, it, yeah, it feels less cookie cutter. Like, you didn't need goblins and orcs, although this movie does have goblins. But yeah. you didn't need, like, elves, and it was just like, they didn't have to do the Middle Earth template. Even the Narnia movies and the Huntsman movies and all those big weird franchises just, like, took a lot of, like, aesthetic pull from the Lord of the Rings movies. And there were so many movies that were just like, yep, this is what a fantasy template looks like. These are the sort of creatures that you'll run into. And so that's one of the reasons I'm interested in it is because it, it, it deviates from that. And it's very much not interested in the Tolkien. Yeah. Aesthetic. Very much so. Tolkien Jackson aesthetic. But but it's not, it's not like a, it's not like a labyrinth or a never ending story where it's, throw a bunch of shit this is a very like focused movie on what uh fantasy elements it wants to portray and then i think it does those elements extremely well but let's get into a little background of this movie before we kind of dive in so yeah let's really see what baby got background baby got background we're all musical was... parody tonight all <laughs> yeah that means again we are out of energy we've been recording um, a lot recently i we... like ridley scott movies and i can't not lie uh, <laughs> he started with the duelist and had an idea for this uh so yeah so he was making the duelist he actually just saw like um i, f- I forget exactly where they shot this movie but they shot it either Heaven. right near yes right near where they were doing uh the duelist or um or in the same location he's like this would be a good setting for a fantasy movie so he started working on the script for that and then eventually did alien and blade runner and coming off of those two he his next movie was going to be this legend and what he really wanted to do for this movie was to do a true Grimm's fairy tale a horror movie that has elements that appeals to children. So he wasn't trying to make a children's movie. He has said in interviews to this that he wanted to make a horror movie for adults that used um, the tropes of, you know, that had been kind of absconded by kids entertainment, which is obviously the Grimm's fairy tale stuff. He didn't want to just make an adaptation of something that already existed. So he, you know, was basically read all these Grimm's fairy tales and kind of took a bunch of elements for it to cr- to craft a new fairy tale in the style of Grimm's, 
I think when you I think looking at all that, the movie makes a lot of sense to me. We'll get into that in a second. But so he makes this movie. The movie does. It gets cut to shit by the studio. He did a screening with this Jerry Goldsmith score, which is in the in the uh, in the director's cut, and the studio hated it. Thought it was too long. Thought it was way too dark. I think they were expecting a children's movie, which I guess makes no sense if they're like, "Well, the guy did Alien and Blade Runner. Can't wait for what he's doing for the kids." <laughs> the Duelist is also a pretty like sober adult movie. Yeah, it's crazy that this movie is rated PG. It is nuts. This is not. We talked last week about like my daughter loving Labyrinth, and she guested a little bit on the show for for a couple minutes. The I show got never... so much worse after uh, <laughs> Morgan and you and me just became our own episode. Oh yeah, no, she's definitely she's definitely the future star of this podcast. I assume when she's five, I'll turn it over to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but you're setting up a dynasty. Yeah, that's that's it's all about the dynasty. The money rolls in at the third generation, baby. This is not a kids' movie in any way, shape, or form. I would never show this to my daughter. I can't. I mean, I can't wait to when she's like nine, eight, but definitely not. Definitely not at this age. This feels like for teenagers that are still into fantasy after turning ten. I guess for me it worked because it does feel like a movie for people that are old enough to appreciate how difficult this movie must have been to make. And oh, to make yeah. it look this good, because that was definitely an element where I was watching it. And I'm like, how am I watching something that there's no seams? There's no fucking seams showing anywhere here. This is amazing. So that definitely um, continues to play an element. But I digress. They they hated it and they cut it 25 minutes out of it. They wanted a more um, score of the time. So they added Tangerine Dream, who I like doing the score. They do some great scores. Do some great scores. But it's not even that this makes it a more 80s movie. It's that um, I I feel this movie is a very, like, sober, sad movie. And if you listen to the theatrical cut, which has Tangerine Dream, it's a lot more of, like, that uh, chest-thumping electronic score so it has a lot more like what i would what i would call heroes themes or uh triumphant songs and the jerry goldmith uh smith score is almost all like dark depressing i think it fits the material a lot better so anyway so he you know this gets released it kind of it bombed in theaters uh again that that classic thing where if you cut out all of the important stuff or a lot of the important stuff in a movie to make it more kid-friendly, but it's not a kid movie anyway, you end up with this kind of bastardization that no one wants to see. Exactly what Legend ended up being, box office failure. People did like the visuals, but they were spoiled because it was the 80s, and they didn't. Like we talked about with Labyrinth, no one was like, holy shit, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen, and pretty soon we're never going to see this again. No one knew. No one had a crystal ball. Really, Scott didn't even know that this, um, the director's cut existed. They found two prints uh, in in the year 2000 of that original screening and he put it back together. They restored it as well they could. So that's kind of the movie, how it ended up being and why I think it really was you know, the theatrical cut while still having some elements that I like, because it still is, there's nothing that's like uh, taken out. It just goes really quick and it makes some bad Bad choices. Uh, really quickly with the differences, and then we'll talk about the director's cut. Uh, if you've only seen the theatrical cut, because unfortunately the director's cut is not available for uh, streaming or digital rental, there's an opening scroll in the uh, theatrical that explains literally everything, which doesn't work for this lyrical 
obtuse movie that follows. Um, it immediately shows uh, Darkness sitting in a throne in all black makeup. So uh, Darkness, Tim Curry doesn't actually come out until about an hour and 15 minutes into this movie, although you hear his voice or see his fingers. And they just show him first scene. Him talking to the goblin, but uh, it's so obvious. But it's like it's 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 like Blade Runner, where like the plot gets laid out pretty quickly and pretty efficiently. Yeah, it's it, this is basically the scene in Blade Runner where not to compare the movies too much, but this is basically the scene in Blade Runner where Deckard goes into the cop's office and the cop explains who the targets are and what we're yeah. going to be doing for the rest of the movie. This is Darkness, the Devil, Tim Curry, explaining what he wants. Uh, yeah. Blicks his little guy to do, and he uh, that the movie follows. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why you need an opening crawl. The, he you explains don't. the whole fucking movie. The movie's not that complicated. He, he does, and you get to hear it explained with a very like theatrical Tim Curry performance, as opposed to literally just this is Jack. Jack wants and, like it even has what it's going to sum it up as, which is like maybe they'll learn a lesson about what the meaning of darkness is like it's it's that like some intern at a studio in 1985 wrote the entire plot of the movie and what they're going to learn at the end onto a completely unnecessary opening crawl to make sure audiences uh got it um so there's no water witch scene which is a which great is scene. my favorite scene in the movie it's like yeah. a weird it's like a weird uh little uh, fight scene in the middle of the movie that i think gives it propulsion yeah, and it gives them again the try or the the challenges that they have to get through to get to darkness. It's much much quicker. In in the director's cut, you see darkness at one fifteen. In the theatrical, you they've defeated darkness at one fifteen. So that kind of gives you a pacing sense of of the difference. I probably um, also it kind of um, neuters the hero's arc as well. Him him taking on this little petty witch with a small fiefdom of this swamp area. Him taking on that little witch and taking the water hag down. Great special effect, by the way. It's a very yeah. drippy oh, and gross. It's gorgeous. It kind of looks like a Witcher 3 monster. Um, yeah. And uh, it's great for the hero's arc because you get to see him take on like a baddie that's definitely above his pay grade, but you watch him outsmart a baddie that's above his pay grade. Whereas before then, you're mostly just watching him stumbling about. Yep. Uh, he doesn't get his sword or his uh, armor. He just has it. Um, and that also means you don't get the introduction of the fairy in a proper way. Dark The the voice, the, the dialogue is much different. So darkness has less pontificating. And so it's a lot more just direct dialogue. Which, again, really ruins the lyrical abstract nature of this movie. Do, do not fucking touch Tim Curry's performance. No. It is the best. I will say this right now. Tim Curry's performance is what saves the movie for me. I would, I would actually, say it's the best thing in a great movie. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would greatly dislike the movie if it wasn't for Tim Curry. Yeah, and he is much more of a typical like uh, villain. You lose, a, again, when you're cutting that much time, of course you're you're losing a lot of the like... What is darkness? Who, you know, what are we to say? You lose a lot of that because it's not. You just they're trying to go bing bang boom, uh, point A to point B. On top of that, they under they undermodulate his voice in the theatrical cut, so it it sounds more otherworldly and eerie in the director's cut, where it sounds a lot more just straight Tim Curry, which is great. But again, it just adds to this whole tone that they are doing a better job of in um, in the director's cut. The last couple things worth of note, 
Of course, the score is more overpowering. It's goofy. It's a lot more triumphant. The final fight is super action heavy. They have the full on sword fight and with like straight Tim Curry shots like blah, blah, using his sword. It's really, really bad. <laughs> Whatever cuts they put that together. And then, of course, uh, they walked into the sunrise together. Mia Sarah and Tom Cruise holding hands um, as opposed to them going off their separate ways. So you end up with the director's cut of much more. I, I'm going to keep saying this, but I really mean it. It's a very image focused, lyrical, kind of just a weird, abstract movie with a very clear cut plot. But it has all this time to absorb the sadness and the darkness of the world. Um, where the theatrical cut is just like, it's a hero, he goes and saves the princess, everything's great. Having not seen the theatrical cut, because I watched the director's cut as told uh, great by, reason. by person that I, I trust, <laughs> and fan of fan of the movie, Aaron Armstrong, who our opinions oh, are close great. enough that I, I just trust, guy. trust your opinion enough, I didn't watch the theatrical cut. Uh, I'm glad you ran through the differences. That doesn't sound interesting to me at all, that sounds like a movie I would actually like outright hate. I think that a lot of what I like about this movie is how it how, – what I like about this movie and also ways it could improve is how it exists in the margins of, of, yeah. of the story and how it exists with this sort of, yes, depressive feel that, like, the story is dragged down not by, like, you know, p characters not knowing where to go or the story getting, like, a detoured in weird ways. Or a lot of exposition that's not – if there yes. is exposition, it's always, like – almost hidden it's like the peach pit of like a weird like i'm just gonna remark on what it means to be me and why i want you to join me and blah 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 which is which i mean makes the exposition of understanding like how unicorns work in this world uh tolerable yes and i i yes you're right i feel like getting into the the hard lore details is what sinks a lot of these fantasy movies for me yeah because i'm like don't tell me you can tell me, uh, you know, a hundred percent of what I want. I, you know, I need to know, and you can tell me a hundred and ten percent of what I need to know. But like a hundred and fifty percent is just like grueling. That's why I, yeah. I have some of the problems with. The, <laughs> that like, was our problem with Neverending Story too. Yes, this this is a memory that Bastion has lost. Yes, that's also a problem that I have with Lord of the Rings extended cuts, where they're like. Not only do they there's scenes that are redundant, there are scenes that are like fucking. <laughs> There are redundant scenes and then there are scenes that are like – they're like almost like giving flesh to characters that don't need flesh. Like I, yeah. I didn't need this character to have any more characterization. You did fine in theatrical cut. Someone making you cut this movie by 30 minutes was a great fucking move. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think – but this but this movie, I think it, it the, because its focus is so uh, – yes, like I said, on the margins, uh, it – uh, doesn't have that problem as much because you're kind of like uh, soaking in the emotions of it more. The problem entirely rests in this movie. I think it entirely rests in uh, characters and the comedy. Hmm. So I don't think there's much comedy. We can talk about that. I want to talk a little bit about the characters. So it's it definitely is the ask of this movie that as I recommend it to people – in most cases, I would say, here's some things you need to be okay with. If you are not okay with them, I could see you not liking this movie. And one of those is that I think the performances of Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah could easily be grating to people. 
I think they're purposeful. I think that because this is supposed to be Ridley Scott's children's movie, it's a children's horror movie for adults, if you follow that uh, that graphing. The gee whiz children's performances that Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah give work really great with what Ridley Scott's ultimate goals are in this movie. However, you do have to hear Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah talk like this the whole movie. Gosh, you really think that's a good idea? You know, 80s Saturday morning cartoon. Again, I think it's purposeful. Tom Cruise is a very good actor. He was a very good actor in the 80s. I think Mia Sarah is a very good actor. I think that they are making a deliberate choice to portray a certain type of character, but that certain type of character, I could see how you could be like, oh my god, this is so difficult to watch. I think the problem is that the central villain of the movie balances the uh, fantasy aspirations of this so well with the grounded character motivation-based aspirations of it that he makes everybody else look like shit. I think Tim Curry is one of the few, these like performances where you're like, you're like, he has reaches such a peak that when you have to compare him to other characters, you're like, but hold on. <laughs> but but I you don't think they, that I works in the more towards the end? Because once I started to compare to Tim Curry, I was like, but, but uh, uh, Tom Cruise is like this like floppy, like, confidenceless like cartoon yeah. character of a boy and it doesn't work for me at all. So I think that's interesting because I agree with you, but I think that that is purposeful. Like I think that's kind of the point of the movie is that darkness is this internal creature who's finally about to have his triumph and who is there to stop him? These innocent dumb kids, one who lives in the forest and one is a is a princess in a castle that, you know, is learning about what she knows about the world from from Tom Cruise, that these are his rivals. These are the people that have come to challenge him. It's not a it's not a fair fight in any real capacity. And I think the performances mirror that. You have an amazing um commanding performance from Tim Curry where he seems like everyone else is beneath him. And they are. And that's why, in theory, if, if you know, I would have been fine with Tim Curry winning, of course, because who cares? It works because of of the performance difference as well. I think if Tom Cruise is like confident Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible Tom Cruise, or, you know, whatever else, Tom, Top Gun Tom Cruise, cocky, I don't think you have that contrast as well. I think you're. I think you think I'm proposing that they just put cocky Tom Cruise in there. What I want is a facet of the characters in both Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah that feel like um, that childlike innocence is believable. I don't believe the childlike innocence of either of them. Okay. I think I think they feel like they're people that have been teen actors taking on a very adult world, both like professionally. And, like, personally, like, them having to, like, vie for these big parts and, like, uh, try and get out there into this this professional world of Hollywood where that, like, eats children alive and them having to basically grow up very, very fast. And then both of them have to be like, 
but wait, what was it like when we were actually children? Or what was it well, like but when we were this, actually teenagers? And I don't well, think that they're going for, a, a, you know, like a, a youthful fantasy thing. I think that they're they're going for a... I think they're failing at trying to depict the innocence of youth in either a way that is like... I don't think that they act this way as kids, and I don't think anybody acted this way as a kid. Yeah, I don't think they're supposed to be kids, though. I just think they're supposed to be... Like adults or twenty-year-olds or late teenagers that got to live up in this innocent, magical world. So less like kid and more like gee whiz, the world's amazing vibe. And you know, for me and Sarah, this was her first movie, so she she probably did have a little bit. I, I wonder if, and this is a theory, I I could easily you wrong but i think that tom cruise's performance in this movie is jarring compared to every other tom cruise <laughs> performance this is very different than anything he's done so i think that's probably why it feels like more of a or it could feel like more of a facade because when you're watching it you see the acting with tom cruise a lot more not because in my opinion he's not doing a good job even though i can see why his choice could be abrasive but because you know tom cruise well enough to go this is a performance that this man is doing because I've seen every other Tom Cruise movie. This is not how Tom Cruise behaves. So I think the amazing thing about Tom Cruise is that Tom Cruise is a very good actor. Tom Cruise, uh, understood, but the, the reason Tom Cruise is such a great actor is because Tom Cruise understood, I think at a very young age, what makes Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. Yeah. And that is confidence. That is, yeah. And that confidence, whether it's earned up. or unearned, yeah, yes, that can be a confidence that gets smashed down to scope, or smashed down to size, or that can be confidence that drives him to be the hero. I think like you can basically take like the color of money or Top Gun, um, and trace both of them forward through his career as like. These are successes that he had that taught him that his characters, he himself in real life needs to be this confidence man. He needs, he in in his, his interactions with producers, his interactions with directors, and the way he slowly became one of Hollywood's like almost like shadow producers. Like he started working with directors to be like, this is how I think the movie should work. And if you're not in, I'm going to go talk to the the money men and make you disappear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, you don't want to do it? That's who I have. He's my new guy, Christopher McGuire. My guy. <laughs> guy did Way of the Gun. My number one guy. Fuck you, A-list director. Yeah, and he uh, – and, and it's mostly worked out for him. I'm, I'm quite a fan of Tom Cruise as a professional actor. Yeah, as, as a professional actor who makes movies. So I feel like anytime you say like, oh, Tom Cruise is really good as, an, as, a, perf- as a job. He's good at his job. Morally, he's, a, he's nightmare. Part of a, a bankrupt, yeah. awful organization. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so I, I think the problem in this film, the reason I bring the confidence thing up is because in this film, he's obviously supposed to be playing a teen who is working his way up from humble roots to... Uh, oh, he's working his way hero. up. He just, lives, he just lives in the forest. This was thrust on him against yeah. his will. And, and he do, I don't think he makes that arc makes sense because yeah. we know Tom Cruise is already a fucking like the the most confident actor like next to like a Marlon Brando who doesn't give a shit like yeah. <laughs> the most confident actor that still well, gives a shit I guess yeah it is definitely jarring because it is like no other Tom Cruise performance and Tom Cruise definitely has a range to his performances but this is 
this is like well outside of that range. This is off the off the scale. And it almost speaks to a different route his career could have gone because this is it's not just weird from a performer out of the ordinary for from a performance standpoint that Tom Cruise is doing, but it also like plays to how short he is. And, like, the movie uses that very successfully. Like, he is supposed to be, even though he's a human, like an impish-type character. Tom Cruise in real life is 5'7". They, he's, like, hunched over and he's supposed to be kind of small and kind of scared of the world. He looks tiny compared to the unicorn. He looks minuscule compared to Tim Curry, who is not only a pretty tall man or, a, a you know – six foot or whatever man in real life but of course he has like another foot to his horns in this movie and they they shoot him big to begin with so you know that 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 became a joke later on in tom cruise's career that he kind of hid his height and always made it look like he was um taller or as tall as co-stars or uh, romantic interests or anything like that but this one really is like this is a short impish man Let's play to those, I guess, strengths by his physical appearance, and it's really nothing that you ever see again. So, I do think there is a facet, subconsciously or unconsciously, when you watch this movie, that rejects Tom Cruise's performance because it's just so different from what you've seen so many other times before. But I, I really think that it's, I don't know, I don't, I, it doesn't bother me i guess and and maybe that's a very like uh left-handed compliment is that the saying left-handed that backhanded backhanded i'm um, sorry for it's a backgammon compliment it's a backgammon keep say that everywhere it's, it's for the, the next week Just say it's the 2018 film gambit pop compliment which means never gonna get made but it's out there mm-hmm. we're all um, thinking about it we're all thinking about it but the compliment's not gonna happen um so, like, it, it definitely is different and it feels purposeful. And I think it works when you look at how the movie what, – what the idea behind the movie is and how it's trying to contrast to Tim Curry's performance. But it definitely is kind of still like, what is happening? It's, it's off-putting in some ways. Um, yeah, I mean, also one thing that American audiences probably didn't react to is it, it is shot kind of like the way European style – sword and sorcery movies were shot yeah you're talking about the bubble budget the bubble budget out yes. of control out i of really control. i really like this i've never seen a movie before where shit is on like falling on screen at all times weirdly it adds to the magical sense of the world you would almost seem that it wouldn't because who would keep it up this long but in every scene where they're in the forest there is like sparkly shit this is the most this is the sparkliest movie ever made and I've seen recently the newest My Little Pony movie, which has a character named after a sparkle, like Twilight Sparkle. This movie has more sparkles in it. I'm just it gonna... definitely has more sparkles. Um, particularly, there's a lot of scenes of uh, Lily being tempted by gold and shiny things that are like, get some fucking sparkle. Oh, yeah. You want to get some sparkle? Gold. But you know what else sparkles? Uh, sparkles, which just fall from the sky for most of this movie. And Sparkles, then at some point they're like snow, have, bubbles. Have, yeah, yeah, at some point they are like, you think we've gone a little too heavy on the sparkles? And from the director's chair, you just hear bubbles. And then get me bubbles. And then and Ridley they, Scott just dropped a bag of cocaine on set and he's like, <laughs> shoot it. Yeah. Dump dump the cocaine. Yeah. I paid five thousand dollars for this shot. It is crazy though. And and weirdly, 
it works because when they go into the castle and there's no bubbles and no sparkles for a little bit, it did feel like, oh, it had like a visceral, I've changed locations and this one is less warm and friendly. And I I don't know how they did that with so, just not having sparkles anymore. It is a cramped, over-designed movie with Oof. detail filling every se- <laughs> second of the yeah. frame until we get to the castle, which is more reservedly designed. And I say that as a compliment. Okay. I think that I, I, Good. Love, I love how cramped and over-designed it is. I love how filled every frame is with detail because it's – and a lot of the detail is redundant. It's like, do they need 900 plants in this shot? Like, no. But does the jungle need 900 plants? Like, it gives the movie more of a sense of wild wonder, I think, that the world is so much bigger than them. Because, like, parts of it look shot in a forest, parts of it look very much shot in a studio. and But all of it the, looks really, it looks really good. It looks really good because I think it has a sense of verisimilitude to it. There's a sense that, like, they are stumbling and ambling through an actual forest that, like, has life and like they keep stumbling on all these strange creatures and like this is something that black cauldron could have used yeah like there's, a good like being a good movie like being a good movie there's a sense that we can talk uh, about I it feels like we're movie. talking about it like behind its back yeah because well, like we're we were done with that episode now so it's over and now i'd be like it wasn't very good yeah we love to watch we don't loved to watch yeah we don't love to think about it after <laughs> We thought about so, it. Like I liked watching it. I liked experiencing it when I was done. I was like, not great. Not great. I love watching movies. Yeah. Anything to like take movies. me off this miserable experience we call life. Oh, the worst. You know what else uh, the worst? The movie life. <laughs> the movie life. Apparently not so good from yeah. your perspective. Not great. Uh, so, yeah, I loved how I, – I, I think that the um, super dense filmmaking is something that, uh, yes, you would also see in Blade Runner. I promise not to keep referencing Blade Runner. But Blade Runner is a movie I love, and I'm using that for kind of context to compare the two. And I think that that uh, sort of lived-in dense world allows for all the crazy weird characters we meet. Yeah. I uh, – you know, it's bizarre. So, I watch Blade Runner and Legend, I think, if I had to guess, the same year. Like, sophomore in college. I'm picturing the apartment I watched them at. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was the same – Part of it, which I only had for sophomore year in college. Here's what's crazy. I walked away from Blade Runner thinking that's a beautiful movie that I don't like all that much. And I walked away from this going, this is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I have not rewatched Blade Runner until about a month ago. And I was wrong 100% on Blade Runner. Uh, that movie is a masterpiece all the way around. I would definitely say it's better than Legend. Uh, but I, I still do love Legend. But it's just so funny that I watched these two you, – you're bringing up comparisons and I think the comparisons are appropriate. But it's funny that like you referenced that I, that this one felt empty to you in a way that Blade Runner um, gets accused of. When I watched them both expecting to love Blade Runner and, hey, I'm checking out 80s fantasy movies with Legend, <laughs> I fell in love with Legend and thought Blade Runner was kind of uh, empty. But – Let's talk a little bit about the makeup because I think the makeup effects in this movie are – I've, I've honestly been racking my brain since I watched this to think of a movie that I would say had better makeup effects specifically related to just a character. Like Tim Curry looks like the devil. He does not look like a man in makeup or design. I was wondering if it was Tim Curry for – 
Every second he was on frame. If it was just Tim yeah. Curry doing the voice or if it was. Nope. He spent 12 hours a day. I mean, why which, it, which why to be clear, get out of it? which to be clear is a day. So he spent a day every day getting ready uh, in this in this in this uh, makeup, which it's just insane. I don't I don't know how he balanced his head. I don't know how he was able to move. Tim Curry those horns have to be those horns have to be like hollow and weigh nothing, right? I mean, they have to be like painted aluminum. Sure, but you're still talking like at least an extra like twenty pounds, and just like the the movement that it has because the weight and the way it would pull, crazy. So. This movie was nominated for an Academy Award for makeup. Peter, 1986, what movie do you think it lost to? 1986. Um, Robocop? Nope. Uh, Robocop's 87. Okay. Give me a hint. It's a movie we've done on this show. Oh, so it could be one of 100 movies. Let me go through every movie we've done on the show. (laughs) Yeah, good. Go uh, no uh, Airbud maybe. Yeah. maybe put a pin in that Air one. Bud. Circle back. <laughs> yeah, Airbud was played by Warwick Davis. So great. Uh, Life Force. Uh, yes, Life Force won an Academy <laughs> Life Force, Award. Beloved film. Peter. Uh, the Fly. Okay, that checks out. The Fly is so that um, does check out. But Fly is more splashy. Yeah, I think, uh, and more un- more unique. I feel like the special, like, if I was to give, if I was like, you have, you have two Academy Awards to give out. You got special effects and you have makeup. Like, I would give special effects to the fly every day of the week. You're talking set design, makeup, that costumes, that kind of stuff. Like, whatever they made to make Tim Curry, Tim Curry and surround him with what he did. That's all the Oscars against most movies. (laughs) I mean, it didn't. It didn't feel as bad like finding out it's some like random 1986 movie that everyone forgot about. That like it's just someone in old age makeup. It didn't feel as bad when I looked it up that it was a nominated and b what it lost to was the fly. But it still was like if I if I had a choice, I I would still go Legend. I think if this movie had done well, maybe they could have made more of an effort. But like the movie was a that's another thing we need to talk about. The movie was a famous bomb. Ridley Scott Huge. his his career was basically Never defined recovered. by. Uh, fits and starts. He's uh, he's a director that gets he gets a bomb and then he goes to the studio and says like, eh, I'm gonna do something else. And they're like, okay. And one of the reasons studios love him and why he's been given so many chances and gotten so many hits. Great names, Ridley, Ridley, Ridley. Uh, isn't just because he's made some of the best movies of all time, like Alien and Blade Runner. Uh, even though Blade Runner bombed, so it probably wasn't a good pitch well, for him in the yeah. in the producer's room, uh, is that he works fast, he tends to stay on or under budget, and he doesn't tend to wrangle with producers a lot. No, that's why there's all these director cuts, because he gives up all those fights. Yeah. yeah. All right. But to him, he's like, that's- Lost that know, one. He's like, well, I needed to make the movie, so I didn't fight with them that much. First cut, okay. last cut. Get it out the door. Like, for him, and then what's interesting is that for him, like, The Counselor was a $30 million movie. That is a low-budget movie for him. Yeah, this movie, I mean, it's 1985 when they shot it. You're talking $16 million, Which, which it, what is what is that for inflation? I don't know, what 35 40 All right, what is the... Uh... I mean, it made eight, so that's what hurt it. But, oh, okay, so it made half its budget. Okay, we got that. Yeah, so I half. plug that in, 50 
100%. It is crazy, though, because if, you, if you're accepting The Duelist, which I haven't seen, but I know uh, as a debut film, a lot of people like it. A lot of people, I think, just like it in general. You look at his, like, first three major works, and you you have Alien, which, like, redefined horror movies. It's one of the House movie. of all time. And I would put it in the top 50, yeah. favorite, the top 50 best movies. Oh, great. You have Blade Runner, which kind of redefined, like, sci-fi. And... In a just world, I mean, you did have Legend X, but in a just world, I think this redefines, like, the way, at least from a visual perspective, fantasy movies. Um, this is just, I think, heads and tails above even stuff like Neverending Story, which I love, and um, Labyrinth, which I love, and other fantasy movies from, like, a world design and makeup and production. And, I mean, everything looks real. It still looks real. 30 plus years later. Just, I want to get this out before I forget because it is very funny. Um, one Hold of the, on one second. One oh, second. go ahead. Rob and Tim Curry spent 12 hours in makeup together? Yeah. That's what I, that's what I said earlier. I know, but that, like that just didn't, it didn't click. Like I was like, yeah, 12 hours, whatever. It's a work, it's, you know, it's a work day plus a couple others. So he did 12 hours in the chair and then he performed these fucking monologues yeah. and he looked, and he sounds more human than Tom Cruise did who just like, well, you know, you, you made, you, you made a very nice thing and you turned it into an insult for no reason, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking, fucking that's insane. Tom Cruise, 18 hours in the makeup chair, Hair, he, the, the wig, was shorter. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't think of anything. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you. What were you saying? No, well, I was. It's fine. Yours was way more on point. I was just going to say that one of one of my favorite like set pieces that still looks very real and believable is uh, the bog witch scene. Which also, as I was watching it, made me realize that every movie we've done this month has a bog in it. Every single one. Yeah, a bog of depression, a bog of, it's a bog witch, of sadness, bog of sadness, bog, bog of sadness, a bog of farts. Bog of Dragons in uh, Black Cauldron. Yeah, that's where oh, they meet the Black witch. Betty, Black Cauldron. Wow, <laughs> are these even parodies anymore? Like, there's a song called Black Betty. It's really no, good. I I get it. Well, yeah, we should it's have not, really saved okay, that for Black. That just ugh. whoa, Black Cauldron, not good movie. Whoa, Black <laughs> Cauldron, not a great movie. Um, got a lot of material for the Black Cauldron episode. We finally worked out. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it is funny that like you got an '80s fantasy movie, you better put a bog in it. Yeah, you well, put I mean, a bog. Put a bog in it. Um, if you'd like it, then you gotta put a bog in it. <laughs> swamp, 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 swamp. <laughs> why? Why are we all awful musical parodies this week? I really, really need this to end. <laughs> We've, we barely talked about the movie. We got three more hours. Uh, so, um, so, uh, so, yeah, the, the bogs in there, that's, that's uh, leaning into, I think, uh, I think that is leaning into bog, the fact bog, that bog, this. Bog, bog, <laughs> did, did Ridley Scott play like Dungeons and Dragons and shit? Like, this feels, this no, feels like, he just a like, movie Grim, that, like, I already told you this. He liked Grimm's fairy tales. He wanted to make a new one. It, this feels very much like it's pulling from normal fantasy tropes, but he's sort of abstracting some of them. Some of them are very not abstract, like all, uh, Blix and the little, uh, what are they, not, goblins? Yeah. That is not abstract at all. They are typical goblins. They are evildoers in service of their devil king, uh, their demon king. Blix is not like that at all. But like a lot of the... Um, 
the way the journey is extrapolated and how they talk about the journey and there's like rules of the forest and there's sacredness. Yeah, let's pause there for a sec because one thing I really like that this movie hits about these uh, fairy tales, this idea of a small, seemingly innocuous action being irredeemable sin or an irredeemable like burden that you or your family or someone you care about will carry going forward. And it doesn't matter that it seems like it shouldn't be that big of a deal because the stories themselves always treat them with just the fact that breaking a rule or breaking a law is bad enough. And, you know, Grimm's fairy tales had that a lot. Those were obviously like stories to like scare kids into listening, which is why Rule doesn't have to make sense. You just got to listen because I don't want you to fall off this cliff. We live in the 1700s. There's a lot of cliffs. Cliffs are everywhere. So there's Cliff like Huxtable. that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No. He's the most dangerous of all of the cliffs, <laughs> to be clear. Uh, so, um, but, so I really like that element because all sh- it's like just don't touch the unicorn. They never say why you can't touch the unicorn. It's just that's the rule of the forest. It's a, like the mortal sin of the forest. You can't touch the unicorn. And she touches the unicorn and immediately like plunges the world in darkness. And no one at any point is like, it's fine. Like you made a mistake. You didn't get it. Every- everyone is like, yes, yeah, she's probably going to have to die. And the movie treats that sin as stupid as it sounds said out loud, as serious as all of these old stories did. It's like, doesn't matter why, doesn't matter what the reason is, you did it and you're going to carry that burden in some way or the other. Yeah, I think that's a great point, is that what it's pulling from actually helps inform it. That's one of the problems with this movie, I think, is that a lot of it uh, doesn't immediately make sense to viewers, and it still doesn't make sense to me. It is well, especially a, when you see the theatrical, which is just like, what the fuck was that? Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. There's a lot of this movie that takes you a minute. And you're like, did that gel with that? Like, there's not, there's not necessarily like a uh, a clean, smooth transition between the modes that the movie is in. I think that it that is something that helps inform the movie. That's helpful is that it is going. It's almost like a morality tale about. Yeah. Uh, respecting the laws of what is sacred and why you uh, you can't get drawn into, uh, you know, just your, your uh, base temptations. Um, weirdly enough, the movie is not that sexually focused. It's not. Her, her, her interactions with Jack are not like, um, you know, Jack and Jill went up a hill. Uh, kind of, kind of. Yeah, you're right. Like they're not like Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh! Uh, and then he got a, that horn, that unicorn horn. Oh, like him showing her the unicorn gets her to trouble, but like their romance doesn't seem. To it's be very in trouble. It's very sexless. It's very innocent. I mean, at the end, she saves the princess and she goes back to her home and he goes to roll in his cave or whatever he lives in. Like, Which is one of the weird things I about the end of the movie is like they set up this ring in the first act and you're like, well, in the third act, he's going to go get that ring, right? No. Yeah. The end of the first one is like now there are – or the, the first one. The end of the theatrical cut really is like now they're finally together, safe for the world, which – there's almost the love that they talk about in this movie is very much a childlike love. Like, I love you. I don't even think they kiss at any point, And I really like that about the movie. It is, again, I, I think if you see this movie through the prism of 
And of, of course, it's, you know, extra textural context. But if you see this movie through the prism of like, a Grimm's fairy tale horror movie made about children for adults. It just it just works so well at all of that. But because of because it is taking those templates, those templates are very basic. You know, they are just like people make a sin, people try to make it right. Most of the time evil wins, sometimes you you save the day. There's not there's not much going on under the surface, but I don't think there needs to be for what it's trying to do. And I think when the surface is this amazing, it makes the whole movie work as like this dreamlike horror movie. I do agree with you. Um, I don't know if the horror movie part of it resonates with me that much. Um, really? I think this I, movie, well, like The Water Witch, that's fucking terrifying. It's very creepy. I think that the goblins are played for. Um, yeah, you mentioned of, comedy. The goblins are pay, uh, the goblins, and who, who? What would you call the little guys that Puck and Jack have with? So them? his name is not Puck; it's Gump, which I should have remembered because of so the Forrest scene Gump. Where he, yeah. for, this Forrest Gump is in this movie. Yeah, it's really a shame we remembered that near the end and missed out on all the great riffing we could have done. <laughs> Run, Gump! Save Jack from... Ugh, we're already out of material. Yeah, man. Oh, well, all the comedies are gone. It was very funny beginning of the episode, but we cannot be funny anymore. Yeah, guys, um, you know how hard it is to operate at this level of of, of expertise? And you wouldn't ask you us laugh? this. You wouldn't ask us to... to, to, to you wouldn't uh, ask Michael Jordan to, like, play another game. They don't do doubleheaders in basketball, as far as I understand it. <laughs> as, far, as far as I have Never figured out this up. knowledge... I, it's never come up. Um, so uh, Forrest Gump and uh, <laughs> oh my god, Jack. it is Forrest Gump because yeah. he lives in the forest. <laughs> yeah, son of a yeah. bitch. Um, <laughs> Forrest Gump and Jack they uh, they go on this party with a guy named Brown Tom and then another guy. Yeah, screw screw cap screw screw top. Sure, Does, screw guy doesn't matter at all. Uh, the their their goofs. Everybody that is. Like below normal height, except for uh, Gump, is portrayed as sort of a comic joke. Yeah, um, they're a little comic reliefy, but and I feel like that's I feel like that's par for the course. Into tropes, I feel like that's leading him into tropes. Yes, that I don't want him to do. Okay, uh, where it's like, but why couldn't like some of these people just be Yoda figures, like short people of people of short stature, but have dignity. okay. But let's talk about Gump because that's one fucking creepy performance and voice acting, and they they are separate because I believe it is a ten or eleven year old boy, and then I assume a uh, woman who smoked for seventy years doing <laughs> the voice. But it's like the same it voice for Gump as uh, Blix, yeah. which made me not trust them. Yeah, it is a like I don't I, I forget who that actor was, but it is a creepy visual performance, uh, and with that voice that doesn't quite match, but it convinces you near like the halfway point that oh that's just his voice and it's just off putting. I think that the problem is that they use they give Blix and him the same voice. Yeah. So like you don't trust Blix and you're like, does is Gump Blix? Like are they buddies? Like what's going on? Is this another trick to get closer to Jack? Like what I think if they had just used the trick, it would have been fine. Because like by the end, you just accept Gump Gump has that weird fucking voice. Yeah. So yeah, Forrest Gump. Uh who who's the author of Forrest Gump? We should probably bring him to the attention of Ridley Scott. 
plagiarism <laughs> lawsuit. That's what I'm talking about. Um, I I see I see Ridley Scott as a very litigious man. I don't know about you. Um, I think he's not. Okay. Uh, let's go with your thing. <laughs> I like that better. You know what? You've convinced me. I like it better that Ridley Scott would not sue the author of the book, Forrest Gump, for for taking essentially the same character mm-hmm. from his movie, Legend. Mm-hmm. Life's like a box of chocolates. Never heard of it. <laughs> Life is like... <laughs> box of chocolates oh my god there's a unicorn horn in here you betrayed the forest um, i like that you made him into a 1980s fantasy nerd look it's a tough it's a tough voice to do you try to do his voice quick old like, master impression oh my god it's it's like the little girls from dune <laughs> just like these like little creepy fuckers who are just like like we must get the spice. Okay, yours is better. <laughs> now Just say, now a, say my thing with your accent. better voice. <laughs> try to do a snake accent. Just trying to do a yeah. Do the accent of the snake people. <laughs> Less hissing. No hissing at all. Actually, <laughs> I'm a snake man. <laughs> I'm a snake man. I'm a snake snake man. I'm a snake man. <laughs> I thank you for making it into a uh, '70s drinking ballad. That's really what we needed. That's pretty much the tone of Ape Man by the Kinks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah, I'm an that's ape pretty man, much it. I'm an ape, ape man. Do you think uh, alcohol I'm like, I'm like was second a, chorus. Do you think alcohol was a drinking song? Yes. Kind uh, of was. Kind of, a little bit. Um, so, I think we're, we're wrapping this bad boy up. And I, I, th- I think it's because, I'll, I'll say my final thoughts to a movie we've done no justice, I think. I'm so sorry, Beth. Uh, please, when you're on the show, if you're listening to this, give us what you, why you love Legend so much. Um, because I feel like we were probably mentally prepared for you to say some good stuff. And we, at no point between uh, you unfortunately not being able to join and us recording, did we like, maybe we should think of some good stuff to say instead of relying wholly on our guest. But what about all the song parodies we did? Those are pretty good. That's why they're pretty good. <laughs> pretty good, like um, pod, I, I, Podcast I, I, Tuesday. Can I close this and let you actually close out the episode? Yeah, you close this. So, uh... One I, last I, call for final I, thoughts. I, <laughs> I, I think us jumping around actually kind of did do justice to the movie. Yeah. Because uh, the movie is... I'm not saying tone poem. The movie is more about how... You feel as you progress, sort of like Blade Runner, you feel as you progress through the story. It's about, uh, it's almost like an impressionist painting at times because the story is so simple that you're like, well, yeah, they're st- still just trying to get to that castle. Uh, they'll, they'll get there any minute now. And then, like, it's, it's, it, the story doesn't seem to be in a hurry to get there. It's sort of more about feeling the journey as it goes and it, it doesn't mind li- a lingering shots of plants and, and, the world around you the there are a million small moments in it that are worthy of 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 digesting but it is just sort of this like uh flowing feeling textural adventure that you just sort of like you 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 either feel the movie or you don't ultimately i i 
didn't I felt the aesthetic of the movie, but I wasn't totally dramatically drawn to it. So yeah. at times I, I felt a little lost, a little rudderless. I do appreciate what it was going for, and I think that it had, if if in retrospect they had imbued the central two characters with a bit more relatable humanity, that this might be like one of my favorite movies of the eighties. Are you of- saying Tom Cruise doesn't have relatable humanity? Because that feels like a shot across the bow. This feels like a movie that, like, if, if the timeline made more sense, I'd be like, well, this is the movie right after Scientologist birthed him in a lab to be the perfect Scientologist. Uh, but the, the I'm timeline is a forest totally creature now. Yeah. Yeah. This is a tough movie to talk about. I, I feel like we did it justice to because our central message of this movie, or my central thesis of this movie, is go watch it because it's one of the most uh, beautiful, inspiring movies to look at that you will ever see it has i don't know surpassed the test of time this is just it's so hard to describe on a podcast a movie that is this like visually pleasing without just going this looks great over and over again and maybe in i probably did that a little bit but you're right the story is nothing to to write home about there's not that much to talk about it is as basic as a kid's fairy tale it's go save the princess from the dark lord meet some obstacles along the way, and ultimately destroy darkness. And it's the feeling that this movie gives you while you're watching it, that you are just watching this otherworldly artifact that is less a movie and more like a portal into this actually existing that Ridley Scott has somehow been able to articulate. Because in most, even the best designed fantasy movies – whether it's today, whether it's the 30s, whether it's in the 80s, you see some seams. Whether it's uh, you know some dodgy compositing, whether it's some bad CGI, whether it's just the fact that you know this looks like you can see the strings on Muppets, or you know it's the 1930s and special effects are in its infancy. This is a rare movie where I just I don't see the seams. Everything looks real. And that in itself is just just this amazing, um, amazing uh, triumph of the movie. And it's good enough for me anyways, and I think a lot of people like this movie, to just be completely lost and absorbed by what you're seeing on screen. So that you don't need to necessarily get caught up in the basicness of the story or some of the uh, performance choices by Tom Cruise especially and a little bit of Mia Sara. Especially when the the performance is outweighed by easily one of the top two or three best Tim Curry performances as the literal uh, devil. Feels like the role he was kind of meant to play. He's such a good villain. Why not play um, the ultimate villain with still his sense of like uh, theatrical panache? So I love it uh, so much and I will – Again, say, if this did not get hammered home enough, if you've never seen it, please seek out the director's cut. Um, And if you have seen it and you're remembering uh, a different movie than the one that I'm describing anyways, I think it's worth your time. But you liked kind of some stuff you saw. I think it is worth worth your time to track down the director's cut because this this movie suffered greatly in in all the ways that we went over. And it is probably if, – if, if you just didn't like it and you were like, I don't like any of this, maybe don't go seek out the director's cut. But if you were, if you 
liked some of it, but were disappointed, I would honestly circle back, check it out because it really, it really makes this a much more abstract, dreamlike, lyrical movie. As you know, sometimes you get stuck on a word, and I feel like I said a lyrical fifty times. So, mm-hmm. you're re-listening to this, drink every time I say lyrical. But <laughs> uh-huh. we're just avoiding avoiding tone poem. Which yeah, is fine. I said dream like visual feast. I don't know. It's it's really great though, and it's. Um, I wish we were capping off the month on a movie that Peter liked a little more. Um, but at the very least, he agrees. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, do you want me to raise it to a three and a half star to make you happier? Yeah, just the makeup effects. That uh, hearing Tim Curry spent twelve hours in the makeup chair. Really yeah, that's four. Give, actually, give it eight. <laughs> give it, give it twelve stars. One star for every hour each day. Tim Curry spent the makeup chair. If we start doing that, we're gonna have to declare the Revenant the best movie of all time. So let's just not do this. I thought the Revenant was fine. Anyway, uh, Pivot, Revenant's a good movie. Yeah, Revenant's a good fine. movie. Yeah, everyone, shut up. Birdman sucked, movie. but he made a good movie after. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really sticking it to the takes from two years ago. Yeah, um, what would you... Uh, yeah, next month, Peter. You know what? Do you smell that? Oh, yeah. I look My house is on fire. Oh, uh, well, put that out, and then I, I smell something different underneath the, the carnage. <laughs> My Melba Stacys are burning. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, love... That's what I was thinking, Peter, because it's in the air, because it's February next month. And, you know, February is the month of love. Thank you. Um, last year was the month of sports. This year, no, last the month year. of yeah. love. Yeah. Some people love sports. Some people love people. The people in our movies are going to love a little something we call monsters this is love and monsters month here's you know here's the problem with all this build-up i believe we i know it's been a while since we've recorded but i believe we announced that we were doing this last month so people are like yeah no we get it you said it already but i appreciate your unveiling it's like it's like someone reopening someone opening a christmas present and the next day dad comes in and goes in here once again behind my back is your lego set again Dad, it's a, just an empty box. We already built it. <laughs> I know. Pretty amazing. So we're doing Love and Monsters. Next week is uh, The Shape of Water, which I think is... I'm, we recorded that a while ago. We both saw it in theaters, which is, I think, the, still the only way you can see it. I'm so excited to listen to that episode again because I there's a point where... Because we, we hadn't read about the movie before seeing it, and then... We didn't read much after because we just went and recorded. And there's, I think, a point in that podcast where you and I are talking about, I don't feel like Richard Jenkins is going to get all that much credit for this movie because of all the other things going on, but he's the best performance. And let me just say now, you will probably hear that next week. Uh, No, we Richard Jenkins got all the credit. (laughs) We were way off. Can we edit in little, like, parade sounds when we are wrong? Because that's a a great thing to be wrong about. I love being wrong when it's about Richard Jenkins getting uh, his, his his due respect. I think at one point I do say, I don't know, we haven't looked at this yet, but I just kind of imagined in, like, the Michael Stuhlberg and Michael Shannon... Doug Jones uh, and Sally Hawkins, like a lot of other great performances that I felt were going to get a little more um, attention. 
that I thought Richard Jenkins was going to be passed over and for just a beautiful performance. And uh, mea culpa for Aaron next week, way off base. Very happy it happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad now you're back on base. Yeah, I was, if anything, I'm going to seem like a soothsayer of repeating things that was probably said by many people at the time if I had read them. It's like, it's like right now, if I don't know anything about evolution and I'm like, maybe that came from that, I'm a, I'm a genius just because I haven't read the material that someone else had already decided that. You're a brain genius, I think. Super We're stable. Brain genius. Super stable genius. Um, great yep. ref. Yeah. Then we're doing um, Bram Stoker's Dracula with Ethan Warren. Very excited to talk to him for the first time. It's his second appearance on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> Peter, what are we doing the rest of the month? Oh, fucking no, dude. Oh, I know. Well, I was figured I'd give you a, like a cuttable thing so you can participate. Uh, we're doing King Kong and Spring. And those are both. <laughs> doing fucking King Kong or doing Spring. They're gonna, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Uh, these are all movies that I'm pretty passionate about, um, even if, like, I'm not totally in love with every single one of them. These movies I'm very passionate about, so I'm very much looking forward to delving into these movies from the perspective of romance and whether or not the, the central relationships are uh, How do well humans love a monster? Uh, yeah, we're definitely, romance is really going to be our number one topic. Throughout all How these. do you solve a problem like Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> um, the last thing, uh, well, at least at least next month, we are ending on a movie I think both of us love, which is Spring. So yeah, this was an episode that we did for our podcast. And I, I think th- we did great think, because think it's it easier for me to pat myself on the back than castigate myself. Yeah, I think it's, I think ideally we should never look at what we do each night here in any sort of critical reflection. I don't see why anybody would. No, I don't think that we should. I don't think anyone should. I would actually feel super bad if people took these podcast episodes and then made a podcast on each one analyzing what they think we did well, what they think we didn't do so well. Uh, I think that would be really hurtful and, oh my god, Peter, is that what we're doing to all of these movies? (laughs) Uh, right. So we'd like to announce for the network. Yeah, we last episode. WLTW, we love to watch. We love to. We love to listen to. We love to watch. Yeah, we love to listen to. We love to WL. So WLTLWLTW. It's coming up next week, right here on our uh, network. That's gone right up our own ass very quickly. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, but right, yes. Well, sure. Good night. But I'm very excited for next month. And uh, Aaron, in in the spirit of February, love you, buddy. <laughs> All right. Well, in the spirit of January, it's cold in here because you did not be. like this movie enough. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right. No, I'm kidding. Love you. No. Good night. Miss you. Love you. I want to see pom-poms from the stairs. Come on, come on. My fingertips and my lips, they burn from the cigarettes. Forrest Gump, you run my mind, boy. Running on my mind, boy. Forrest Gump, I know you're Forrest. I know you wouldn't hurt a beetle, but you're so buff. 
Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.